right, welcome to Surreal Politics Stage 1, Episode 7, pedophiles.gov. Good to be with you. Uh, you may gather I'm the, uh, I'm the host of this production here, and I thank you very much for tuning in this evening. And uh, we got, it was an interesting story in the news today that um, former CIA, the, the current CIA director, I should say, <laughs> was meeting up with Jeffrey Epstein. And I thought that that was pretty interesting, because you might know that um, there was, shall we say, some speculation that maybe he was working for the intelligence agencies, and if you follow me long enough, you know that I have an interest in that sort of thing. And I, I had taken a certain degree of amusement at, uh, you might, I think you heard me talk about this on this show, I don't know if it was here or elsewhere, but I took a degree of amusement at Marjorie Taylor Greene's 60 Minutes interview, where she said, that she called the Democrat Party a bunch of pedophiles, you know, and I thought that, that was kind of amusing in large part because it's true. And Leslie Stahl, the, uh, the um, you know, the propagandist, the regime hack who does that, she, she feigned bewilderment, right, as if this was like the most outrageous thing that a person could say. And she stated without evidence that that Green had no evidence of this, of course, right? So Green responded, in essence, by saying that pushing transgenderism on kids was about as straightforward an example of this as one could possibly imagine, right? And uh, since this is by no means a secret, uh, Leslie Stahl was more or less without a response. And that's kind of how this worked, you may have gathered. One of my favorite radio guys, a guy named Chris Plant, he often says the media's most insidious power is the power to ignore. And you might have gathered they do a great deal of that, right? Oh, you mean that evidence? All right. Well, we'll move on to the next subject. Uh, you know, people say that you're a crazy kook, and isn't that true, Miss Lady? Huh? <laughs> you know, they'll dedicate inordinate amounts of time to trying to convince you that white supremacy is a threat to the survival of democracy and all that is decent and holy, right? And it may go without saying that this requires, you know, some substantial effort. It's not the pedophiles you got to watch out for, you see. It's those QAnon nuts who criticize them that worry our chattering propagandists. Perhaps they're just eager for a challenge, right? They're just trying to work harder. They're disinterested in the lowest hanging fruit. The pedophiliac tendencies of our ruling classes are simply too obvious to bother with these days, so they get energetic about things not nearly so prevalent. Or perhaps the truth speaks less charitably to their motives. Jeffrey Epstein's private calendar has been published, according to the Wall Street Journal. In it, Epstein is said to have had three appointments in 2014 with then-Deputy Secretary of State, who now runs the Central Intelligence Agency. They first met in Washington, and then Mr. Burns went uh, and visited Mr. Epstein's home in Manhattan. They visited three different times. Now, there's plenty of other interesting names to speak of, but let's stick with Mr. Burns for the time being, because espionage is a very interesting angle to me, you might have gathered. A convicted child sex predator meets with a high-ranking government official during the Obama administration. When power changes hands in Washington, the pedophile gets arrested again by the Trump administration. Days before his bail hearing, the billionaire pedophile with an army of lawyers and a track record of getting sweetheart deals commits suicide while the cameras just happen to stop working and the guards just happen to be taking a catnap. Power changes hands again, under very dubious circumstances, I might add, and this high-ranking government official who was hanging out with the convicted pedophile, 
he becomes one of the administration's top spies. Ain't that something? And of course, you know, the 911 tapes pertaining to the suicide, they're mysteriously missing. And the only guy on television willing to talk about this for what it is, he gets fired. <laughs> that's, a, that's a heck of a thing, huh? I guess noticing this continuity of events makes me something of a conspiracy theorist. I, I, don't, I don't like being a conspiracy theorist, you know? People look down on that. They're like, oh, you're one of those crazy kooky guys who thinks that people might do something wrong and involve others in their illicit behavior. And I'm like, no, I, I don't imagine that people do bad things with one another. No, I would never imagine speaking of anything so ridiculous. Please let me have my PayPal account back, please. <laughs> When I, uh, when I lacked uh, internet access for a little while, you might have heard, and uh, I came across a book titled Epstein, Dead Men Tale No Tales, Spies, Lies, and Blackmail by Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin. And you can get this book through our affiliates, Thrift Books or Books A Million, uh, I'll mention. And uh, we'll get a cut of the sale if you do that. This, uh, this book drew connections between Epstein and Israel's Mossad, and uh, never one for a single source story, of course. You know, anybody can say crackpot things about Jeffrey Epstein. He's dead. He can't defend himself, right? But the claims were actually reinforced by another book, which was written previously, much, much previously, titled Gideon's Spies, The Secret History of the Mossad by Gordon Thomas, which, you guessed it, is also available through our affiliates, Thrift Books or Books A Million. And what I set up today, actually, if you go to surrealpolitics.com slash readme, um, I'm going to con- I'm going to be compiling like uh, whenever I mention books here, I'll add them to that list, and I'll add a couple other ones there too because uh, you might have mentioned uh, you might have heard me mention I've read some interesting books and some. You'll get the reading recommendations right over there, and I pulled up these books here uh, to read you a couple of excerpts from them because I thought it was pretty interesting. In uh, in oh this is I'm on the wrong page. I got to go back. This is from um, Dead Men Tell No Tales. This is the one specifically about Epstein. The, the, the Mossad book doesn't actually mention Epstein by name. It talks more about Ghislaine Maxwell. Well, not, and not even Ghislaine, but like her father was all mixed up with the Mossad, right? And, you know, if your father's mixed up in the Mossad, and then you end up hanging out with some guy who's getting sweetheart deals and, you know, is involved in pedophile stuff, then, you know, maybe it makes sense. George W. Bush was entering the final months of his oversight of the bungled Iraq war, and Britain was one of the country's last remaining allies as part of a much-fetid coalition of the willing, referring to the U.S.-led multinational force in Iraq. Surely he had reason to keep Epstein quiet and to prevent Prince Andrew's name from being dragged through the mud in a highly publicized and scandalous trial. In addition, former Bill pal Bill Clinton's uh, wife, Hillary, was in the midst of her first presidential campaign. Epstein's Palm Beach pal, Donald Trump, had even come out to support her, calling her a wonderful woman who would make a wonderful president. As for Trump, he had just launched Celebrity Apprentice and was riding high in his new career as a reality television star. Also in 2008, Mohammed bin Salman had finished college and was launching his political career in Saudi Arabia by joining the Saudi cabinet. Notorious Saudi arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi was in the midst of a reputation overhaul, selling an image, the New York Times reported at the time. He prefers these days to be remembered as Mr. Fix-It rather than as the arms dealer involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. 
All of these people would have an incentive and motive to keep the peace when it came to Epstein and what he knew. Epstein was sort of flying very important people around the world, providing young girls for them, said Martin Dillon, after conversations with sources like Mossad. Building files, it's how the intelligence services work. They call it a honey trap, Dillon said. Referring to the time-honored intelligence practice of using spies, of spies using the lure of sex to entrap targets. But it's much more sophisticated than that. The honey trap, or love trap, it is sometimes known, has a long and salacious history in American espionage. According to a 1975 Washington Post report, for years, a central intelligence agency operated love traps in New York and San Francisco, where foreign diplomats were lured by prostitutes in the pay of the CIA. Through hidden one-way mirrors, CIA agents filled the sexual adventures and later tried to blackmail the victims into becoming informants. The article noted the CIA possibly got the idea from the Russians who have long used sex blackmail to entrap Westerners into spying for them. CIA reps told the Washington Post reporters that they, quote, never heard of this, but for Epstein, the playbook was already written. Dylan explained, if you're an intelligent, if, if you're an intelligence community, you have someone like Epstein, who's kind of a celebrity, who can attract celebrities, who can be in part of conversations about world events, about the most secret things. If you could put people like Clinton on his planes and you can put Ehud Barak, a former prime minister of Israel and a former general, then he is a guy who really matters to you. If he's going to be your friend, if he's going to work for you, he is going to be an asset for you. Look at what he can do for you. He can give you information on all these politicians, on their private behavior, their peccadillos, and all these things are important to an intelligence community. Former CIA counterterrorism specialist Philip Giraldi said that he has little doubt that Epstein was running an intelligence operation and that his knowledge helped him escape justice. Quote, there's no other viable explanation for his filming of prominent politicians and celebrities having sex with young girls, Giraldi wrote in the American Herald Tribune in August 2019. Epstein clearly had contact with former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres and Ehud Barak, Epstein's client Leslie Wexner, also had close ties to Israel and its government. In addition to flying the Lolita Express, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak also visited Epstein at his Manhattan home. In January of 2016, he was photographed entering the property, followed by four young women soon after. I was there for lunch and chat, so nothing else. So what? <laughs> said Barak in a statement that after the visit was reported. I never went to a party with him. I never met Epstein in the company of young women or young girls. He's also admitted to having uh, visited Little St. James, but said he did not attend any parties or see any young girls there either. Well, you know, I guess we're just going to have to believe you because nobody would lie about such a thing. According to Giraldi, former Palm Beach County State Attorney Barry Krishner also may have been responsible for swaying Acosta in 2008 behind the scenes. This was uh, the law enforcement people behind the scenes when he uh, had the other charge. Krishner had won the prestigious Anti-Defamation League Award 10 years before. The ADL is a U.S.-based Jewish organization with a long history of domestic spying allegations. The Jewish state regularly tops the list for ostensibly friendly countries that aggressively conduct espionage in the United States, Giraldi claimed. Mossad would have exploited Epstein's contacts. Those blackmailed would undoubtedly, in most cases, operate with the foreign governments involved to avoid a major scandal. 
fallen into the hands of the American justice system in Florida, he would have provided information far more explosive than whatever was happening at Bear Stearns. Indeed, Epstein's attorney, Kenneth Starr, at one point went over to Acosta's head, went over Acosta's head to Republican appointees in the Department of Justice, demanding that they drop the case. The attorney general in 2008, who likely would have received the request, was M- Michael Mukasey, an Orthodox Jew with such deep ties to Israel that he had been accused of having dual citizenship. Oh. In retrospect, it's clear that Epstein's blackmail files were at least the heart of this epic sweetheart deal. It wasn't just the contents of those files that his friends and enemies wanted to keep quiet, however. It was the fact that the deal itself seemed most dangerous. As part of the plea deal, Acosta and his team agreed to try to keep the details of their arrangement out of the press. The New York Times covered Epstein's sentencing to a fluffy report set on his palm-fringed Xanadu in the Caribbean. The prosecutors, Mr. Epstein is just a... Two prosecutors, I should say. Mr. Epstein is just another sex offender, reported uh, Landon Thomas Jr., despite all evidence to the contrary. Epstein admits that his behavior was inappropriate, Thomas wrote. Perhaps the understatement of the century... The article even featured tough talk from a member of Acosta's team insisting that Epstein would get no house arrest, a claim Thomas apparently did not question. It was later revealed that Thomas asked Epstein for a $30,000 donation to his favorite charity. After the donation was uncovered, Thomas left the New York Times under a cloud of controversy. And so that's a little, the briefest of introductions into sort of the, uh, the espionage allegations. What I think was funny is to, uh, not funny per se, it's, it's not actually that funny, <laughs> it's kind of crazy, um, was to go back into this this Mossad book and talk about um, not Ghislaine Maxwell directly, but her father, Robert Maxwell. He was uh, he owned this newspaper, the, da- the Daily Mail, as a matter of fact, you've heard of this, I'm sure. Um, he used to own this uh, newspaper. And he was basically like exploiting the newspaper um, to aid the Israeli Mossad and do all of these things. And, um, well, I don't want to spoil it, but I'll tell you now that it didn't work out very well for him. Maxwell had volunteered, this is from um, uh, Gideon's Spies by Gordon Thomas. Maxwell had volunteered his services at the end of a meeting in Jerusalem with Shimon Perez shortly after Perez had formed a coalition government in 1984. One of Perez's allies would call would recall the encounter as the ego meets the megalomaniac. Perez was haughty and autocratic, but Maxwell just drove on, saying things like, I will pour millions into Israel. I will revitalize the economy. He was like a man running for office. He was bombastic, interrupted, went off on tangents, and told dirty jokes. Perez sat there smiling his Eskimo smile. Recognizing that Maxwell, over the years had developed powerful contacts in Eastern Europe, Perez arranged for Maxwell to see Admani. Now, Admani at the time was uh, the chief intelligence officer of the Israeli Mossad. The meeting took place in the presidential suite of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, where Maxwell was staying. Maxwell and Admani found common ground in their Central European backgrounds. Maxwell had been born in Czechoslovakia, which had led Perez to utter one of his few remembered jokes, quote, the only thing bouncing, the, the only the only bouncing check I know with money. Ha ha ha. 
Both men shared a burning commitment to Zionism and believed Israel had a God-given right to survive. They also enjoyed a passion for good food and good wine. Admani was keenly interested in Maxwell's view that both the United States and the Soviet Union had a similar desire to achieve global domination, but through significantly different approaches. Russia included international anarchy as part of its strategy, while Washington saw the world in terms of friends and enemies rather than nations with conflicting ideological interests. Maxwell had offered other insights. The CIA's secret contact with the Chinese counterparts was causing unease in the State Department, which found it could impinge on future diplomatic actions and policies. The tycoon had painted portraits of two men of particular interest to Admani. Maxwell said after meeting with Ronald Reagan, he came away with the feeling that the president was an eternal optimist who used his charm to conceal a tough politician. Reagan's most dangerous failing was that he was simplifier, what that was that he was a simplifier, and never more so than on the Middle East, where his second or third thought was no better than his original shoot-from-the-hip judgment. Maxwell had also met William Casey. He was the, then the director of the CIA. It's not clear from the text here. i inform you. Sorry. Come on. Maxwell also then met William Casey and judged the CIA director as a man of narrow opinions and no friend of Israel. Casey was running a can-do agency with outmoded ideas about the role of intelligence in the current political, geopolitical uh, arenas. Nowhere in Maxwell's view was this more evident than in the way Casey had mistreated Arab mentions in the Middle East. Arab intentions, I should say. These views coincided exactly with those of Nahum Admani. After, they, after the meeting, they drove Admani's unmarked car to Mossad headquarters, where the tycoon was given a personally conducted tour of some of the facilities by the director general. Now a year later, March 15, 1985, they would meet again. Not until Admani and Ben Menashe entered Maxwell's office suite in Mirror, uh, not the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, that was what it was, I'm sorry. In Mirror Newspaper's headquarters in London's High Holborn, did uh, their host announce that he would be one other person, that there would be one other person present to share the bagel, locks, and coffee. Maxwell had ordered to share the what he had ordered, sorry. Like a conjurer producing a rabbit out of a hat, Maxwell introduced Victor Chebrikov, vice chairman of the KGB and one of the most powerful spy masters in the world. With masterful understatement, Ben Menashe would subsequently admit that, quote, for a KGB leader to be in a British newspaper publisher's office might seem a fanciful notion, but at the time, President Gorbachev was on a very friendly terms with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. So that was acceptable for Chebrikov to be in Britain. More debatable was that the founder of Thatcherism and its free trade principles would have made of the was what, <laughs> sorry, more debatable was what the founder of Thatcherism and the free trade principles would have made of the agenda for the meeting. Sprawled in Maxwell's hand-tooled leather armchairs, Admani and Ben Menashe led the discussion. They wanted to know if very substantial amounts of currency were being transferred to banks in the Soviet Union, could Chebrikov ensure that the deposits would be safe? The money was from the ORA's uh, profits in the U.S. sale of arms to Iran. Chebrikov asked how much money was involved. 
Ben Menashe replied, 450 million American dollars with similar amounts to follow, a billion maybe more. Chebrikov looked at Maxwell as if to ensure he had heard correctly. Maxwell nodded enthusiastically. This is perestroika, he boomed. And so there's that one. Let me go to this other segment. 191 is the one I pulled up. So he's there with the head of the Mossad and the KGB. This is the mother, uh, the father of uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. And so I think that that's, uh, that's really something. I think you'll agree. Robert Maxwell, who once fired a reporter who had cheated on his expenses, had been secretly stealing the pension funds of his employees to support Mossad. The wholesale thefts mirrored Mossad's own uh, ruthless cunning and increasing willingness to take high-risk gambles. Maxwell had personally removed the money through a series of interlinked financial maneuvers, which years later would leave financial investigators awed by his skilled duplicity. Maxwell had given mass-scale swindling a whole new dimension, transferring hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time into special uh, account Mossad maintained in the Bank of Tel Aviv in Israel. The funds had sometimes been laundered through an account the Israeli embassy in London had with Barclays Bank. Other banks Maxwell used for his fraud, unbeknownst to them, included Credit Suisse in Geneva, the bank from which Ben Menashe had transferred $450 million of ORA funds with Maxwell's connivance. Sometimes the stolen pension funds traveled around the world, touching down at Chemical Bank in New York, Australia's first national bank, and banks in Hong Kong and Tokyo. Only Robert Maxwell knew the money was purloined and where it was, uh, where it was at any given time in its journey. What made matters worse was that he frequently ordered his newspapers to attack white-collar crime. Oh. Is he running around accusing people of precisely what he's doing? Have we, have we seen this once or twice? That's interesting. Victor Ostrovsky, a Canadian-born Israeli who served as a Mossad case officer from 1984 to 1986, was the first to discover what had been happening. Mossad was financing many of its operations in Europe from money stolen from Maxwell's newspaper pension fund. They got their hands on the funds almost as soon as Maxwell made the purchase of the Mirror newspaper group with money lent to him by Mossad. Together with expert advice he received from its financial analysts, What was sinister about it, aside from the theft, was that anyone in his news organization traveling anywhere in the Middle East was automatically suspected of working for Israel and was only one rumor away from the hangman's noose. On visits to Israel, Maxwell was feted like a head of state. He was a regular guest of honor at government banquets and he was given the finest accommodations. But Mossad had taken the precaution of being... uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, the the Mossad had taken the precaution of being prepared should the proverbial hand that fed it suddenly withdraw its largesse. Discovering Maxwell had strong sexual appetites and, because of his massive size, favored oral sex. Mossad arranged that during the tycoon's visit to Israel, he was serviced from one of the stable of prostitutes the service maintained for blackmail purposes. Soon the Mossad had acquired a small library of video footage of Maxwell in sexually compromising positions. The bedroom suite of the hotel where he stayed had been rigged with concealed cameras. <laughs> so does this sound at all familiar? I mean, we're not reaching allegations that he was involved with underage girls, which is, a, you know, it's a whole different category of stuff. But 
I don't know. Where did Epstein come up with this idea to, to start blackmailing people with sex videos? I don't know. Maybe because it happened to Ghislaine Maxwell's dad. 207 is the next one. Two oh seven. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. Back in London, Maxwell, against all odds, seemed to be succeeding in holding on to his newspaper group. He was likened to an African whirling dervish as he went from one meeting to another seeking financial support. From time to time, he called Mossad to speak to Edmani, always informing him of the director general's, uh, to always informing the director general's secretary that the little check was on the line. The sobriquet had been bestowed upon Maxwell after he had been recruited. What was said in those calls would remain unknown. But a clue li- would later emerge from the former Katza. Katza is a, a term, if I'm sorry, uh, the Katza is the case manager, and Saim or Sayanim, or the Sayan or the Sayanim are um, uh, uh, Jews who live in other countries who are recruited by the Mossad to act uh, in uh, the function of espionage for the uh, Israeli intelligence agency. But a clue would later emerge from the former Katza, Viktor Ostrovsky. He believed Maxwell was insisting it was payback time and that the huge sums of money he had stolen from the Mirror Pension Fund should now be returned to him. At the same time, Maxwell also proposed that Mossad should, on his behalf, lobby for Mordecai Venanu to be freed and handed over to him. Maxwell would often would then fly the technician to London and personally interview him for the Daily Mirror. The story would be Venanu's act of atonement, written in a way that would show Israel's compassion. With the chutzpah characteristic of so many of his actions, Maxwell added it would be a huge circulation booster for the mirror and would unlock doors still closed to him in the city of London. Ostrovsky was not alone in believing that the preposterous plan finally convinced Mossad that Robert Maxwell had become a dangerous loose cannon. On September 30, 1991, further evidence of Maxwell's bizarre behavior came when he phoned Admani. This time, there was no disguising the threat in Maxwell's words. His financial affairs had once more taken a turn for the worse, and he was being investigated in Parliament and the British media, so long held at bay by his posse of high-priced lawyers and their quiver of writs. Maxwell then said that unless Mossad arranged to immediately return all of the stolen Mirror Pension Fund money, he would not be sure if he could be able to keep the secret at Monty's, be able to keep secret at Monty's meeting with Vladimir uh, Krukov, the former head of the KGB. Krukov was now in Moscow, when I was now in a Moscow prison awaiting trial for rolling an abortive coup attempt against Mikhail Gorbachev. A key element of the plot had been meeting uh, Khrushchev on the Maxwell's yacht in the uh, Adriatic shortly before the coup was launched. Mossad had promised that Israel would use its influence with the United States and key European countries to diplomatically recognize the new regime in Moscow. In return, Khrushchev would arrange for the all-Soviet Jews to be released and sent to Israel. The discussion had come to nothing, but revealing it could seriously harm Israel's credibility with the existing Russian regime and with the United States. That was the moment Viktor Ostrovsky would write when a small meeting of right-wingers at Mossad headquarters resulted in a consensus to terminate Maxwell. 
If Ostrovsky's claim is true and it has never been formally denied by Israel, then it was unthinkable that the group was acting without the highest sanction and perhaps even with the tacit knowledge of Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, the man who had once had his own share of killing Mossad's enemies. The matter for Mossad could only have become more urgent with the publication of a book by veteran American intelligence reporter Seymour Hirsch. You might have heard, I think his name came up recently in relation to this, um, the, um, the Nord Stream pipeline thing. The Samson opinion, Israel, America, and the bomb, which dealt with Israel's emergence as a nuclear power. News of the book had caught Mossad totally by surprise, and copies were rushed to Tel Aviv. Well-researched, it could nevertheless still have been effectively dealt with by saying nothing. The painful lesson of the mistake... I'm sorry. But there was one problem. Hirsch had identified Maxwell's links to Mossad. Those, those ties mostly involved the Mirror Group's handling of the Venunu story and the relationship between Nick Davies, LRA, and Ari Ben-Menashe. Predictably, Maxwell had taken refuge behind a battery of lawyers issuing writs against Hirsch and uh, London, his London publishers. But for the first time, he met his match. Hirsch, a Pulitzer Prize winner, refused to be cowed. In Parliament, more pointed questions were asked about Maxwell's links to the Mossad. Old suspicions surfaced. MPs demanded to know, under parliamentary privilege, how much Maxwell knew about Mossad's operations in Britain. For Viktor Ostrovsky, the ground was starting to burn under Maxwell's feet. Ostrovsky would claim that the carefully prepared Mossad plan to kill Maxwell hinged on being able to persuade him to keep a rendezvous where Mossad could strike. It had a striking similarity to the plot that led to the death of Mehdi Benbarka in Paris. On October 29, 1991, Maxwell received a call from Akatsa, the case manager, at the Israeli embassy in Madrid. Maxwell asked to him to come to uh, Maxwell was asked to come to Spain the next day, and according to Ostrovsky, his caller promised that things would be worked out so that there was no need to panic. Maxwell was told to fly to Gibraltar and board his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. That's the the name of the yacht is the Lady Ghislaine, which is the same as his daughter's name, who was hooked up with the and order the crew to set sail for the Canary Islands and wait there for a message. Maxwell, uh, Robert Maxwell agreed to do as instructed. On October 30th, four Israelis arrived in the Moroccan port of Rabrat. They said they were tourists on a deep-sea fishing vacation and hired an ocean-going motor yacht. They set off toward the Canary Islands. On October 31st, after Maxwell reached the port of Santa Cruz on the island of Tenerife, he dined alone in the Hotel Mency. After dinner, a man briefly joined him. Who he was and what they spoke about remain part of the mystery of the last days of Robert Maxwell. Shortly after, Maxwell returned to his yacht and ordered it back to sea. For the next 36 hours, the Lady Ghislaine sailed between the islands, keeping well clear of the land, cruising at various speeds. Maxwell had told the captain he was deciding where to go next. The crew would not recall Maxwell showing such indecision. In what it claimed was a world-exclusive headlined How and Why Robert Maxwell Was Murdered, Britain's, uh, Britain's Business Age magazine subsequently claimed that a two-man hit team crossed in a dinghy during the night from the motor yacht that had shadowed the Lady Ghislaine boarding the yacht. They found Maxwell on, 
they found Maxwell on the after deck. The men overpowered him before he could call for help. Then one assassin injected a bubble of air into Maxwell's neck via his jugular vein, and it took just a few minutes for Maxwell to die. The magazine concluded the body was dropped overboard and the assassins returned to their yacht. It would be 16 hours before Maxwell was recovered, enough time for the needle prick to recede beyond detection as a result of water immersion and the skin being nibbled by fish. More certain, on the night of November 4 to November 5, Mossad's problems with Maxwell were laid to rest in a cold swell in the Atlantic. The subsequent police investigation and the Spanish autopsy left unanswered questions. Why were the only two of why were only two of the yacht's 11 men crew awake? Normally, five shared the night's watch. To whom did Maxwell send a number of fax messages during those hours? What became of the copies? Why did the crew take so long to establish Maxwell was not on the boat? Why did they delay raising the alarm for a further 70 minutes? To this day, no convincing answers have emerged. Three Spanish pathologists were assigned to perform the autopsy. They wanted the vital organs and tissues to be sent to Madrid for further tests. But before this could be done, the Maxwell family intervened ordering the body to be embalmed and flown forthwith to Israel for burial. The Spanish authorities, unusually, did not object. Who or what persuaded the family to suddenly act as it did? On November 10, 1991, Maxwell's funeral took place in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, the resting place for the nation's most revered histories. Uh, I'm sorry, the resting place for the nation's most revered heroes. It had all the trappings of a state occasion, attended by the country's government and opposition leaders. No fewer than six serving former heads of the Israeli intelligence community attended as Prime Minister Shamir eulogized. He has done more for Israel than today can be said. Those who stood among the mourners included a man dressed in a somber black suit and shirt, relieved only at the throat by his Roman collar. Born into a Lebanese Christian family, he was wraith-like figure, barely five feet tall and weighing a little over 100 pounds. But Father Ibrahim was no ordinary priest. He worked for the Vatican's Secretariat of State. His discreet presence at the funeral was not so much to mark the earthly passing of Robert Maxwell, but to acknowledge the still-secret ties developed between the Holy See and Israel. It was a perfect example of Miramit's dictum that intelligence cooperation knows no limits. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Now, that is not, you know, that part obviously is not about Epstein directly, but I think it is uh, interesting and telling no less the case because, you know, he was all hooked up with this Maxell woman. And... He gets all mixed up in all this spy stuff, right? And, of course, we haven't mentioned much about the Central Intelligence Agency yet, but they were certainly a factor in all of this. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the current CIA director was meeting with Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) And, you know, part of what's funny about this is that I read a story not so long ago. Some of you might have heard about this. Um... I read a story about a guy who's suing the U.S. State Department right now because he uh, was uh, put on unpaid leave because there's there's something, I I don't know the details and I don't really want to air them anyway, but 
the gist of it is this guy's security clearance got yanked because they determined that he had like ties to white nationalists. Okay. And there's a lawsuit ongoing about this. And they say, well, we didn't actually yank his security clearance because he had ties to white nationalists. We yanked his security clearance because he didn't tell us that he had ties to white nationalists. And one of the questions that he had to answer is, are you involved in anything that anybody could use to impugn your um, reputation, even unfairly, right? So this is what they ask of like some guy who works at the State Department, not the Deputy Secretary of State, not the head of the CIA, you know. I don't know exactly what the guy's job was, but he wasn't a diplomat and he wasn't a spy. (laughs) And they said, hey, um, uh, before you work here, we got to know, you know, if we're going to give you the security clearance, we got to know if anybody, if there's anything in your life that somebody might unfairly use to diminish your reputation. And they said that because he said no while having associations with white nationalists, that he had lied, and that was justification to take his security clearance away, and that's the subject of the government's motion to dismiss. All of which is to say, you think somebody might have asked the guy who was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein in 2014 if anybody might have anything to impugn his reputation before he became the head of the CIA in the Biden administration? What do you think his answer to that question was? Do you think he told the Biden administration while I was hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein? And they were like, yeah, I know. That's why we called you. (laughs) It's completely nuts. You know, they used to try to feign some level of like, yeah, this is all on the level. You know, like it used to be that they wanted you to believe that everything was okay. And I don't think they even, I don't think that's even the goal anymore. They're just like, yeah, you know, we're, we're like a, a bunch of pedophiles. This is basically a crime organization and um, you're going to pay us whether you like it or not. I, I think is basically the, the attitude that these people have at this point. And they're just out and about it. <laughs> Yes, of course, we're going to we're going to we're going to push transgenderism on your children. We're going to blackmail people and yada, yada, yada. We'll hang out with pedophiles who work for foreign governments. And we'll blackmail people. and It's going to be a lot of fun. And then, uh, you know, oh, you were mixed up with them. <laughs> that's perfect. That way we know that you're not going to mess with us. Right. I guess that's probably what it is. You know, that's what Trump should have done. Right. You get somebody in charge of the CIA who Trump could blackmail. He'd probably have a lot less trouble. A lot less of his phone calls would end up on the pages of the New York Times if Trump had a blackmail file. That's what he should have done. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to, so please do give us a call. Jeffrey Epstein's private calendar reveals prominent names including CIA chief and Goldman's top lawyer. Schedules and emails detail meetings in the years after he was a convicted sex offender Visitors cite his wealth and connections. Of course, they're like, oh, well, you know, I, was, I wasn't there for the broads. I was just there for the money. Okay, where do you get the money? To find Oh, oh, this is, <laughs> what time is it? This is uh, 51 minutes, 21 seconds in. 51, 21. Huh? This is surreal politics. I'm not supposed to say things like that on here. Sorry about that, live audience. The nation's spy chief, a longtime college president, and top women in finance, 
the circle of people who associated with Jeffrey Epstein years after he was a convicted sex offender is wider than previously reported, according to a trove of documents that include his schedules. William Burns, director of the Central Intelligence Agency since 2021, had three meetings with Epstein in 2014 when he was Deputy Secretary of State, the documents show. They first met in Washington, then Mr. Burns visited Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan. Kathleen Rumler, a White House counsel under President Barack Obama, had dozens of meetings with Epstein in the years after her White House service and before she became a top lawyer at Goldman Sachs Group, Inc. in 2020. He also planned for her to join a 2015 trip to Paris and a 2017 trip to Epstein's private island in the Caribbean. Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College, invited Epstein, who brought a group of young female guests to the campus. Noam Chomsky, a professor, author, and political activist, was scheduled to fly with Epstein to have dinner at Epstein's Manhattan townhouse in 2015. None of their names appear in Epstein's now public black book of contacts or in the public flight logs of passengers who traveled on his private jet. The documents show that Epstein had arranged multiple meetings with each of them after he had served jail time in 2008 for a sex crime involving a teenage girl and was registered as a sex offender. The documents show, with, which include thousands of pages of emails and schedules from 2013 to 2017, haven't been previously reported. I wonder why. The documents don't reveal the purpose of those meetings. The Wall Street Journal couldn't verify whether every scheduled meeting took place. Most of those people told the journal they had visited Epstein for reasons related to his wealth and connections. Several people said that they thought he had served his time and had rehabilitated himself. Mr. Botstein said he was trying to get Epstein to donate to his school. Mr. Chomsky said him and Epstein discussed political and academic topics. Yeah, we were talking political and academic topics. I'm sure you did. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Mr. Burns met with Epstein about a decade ago as he was preparing to leave government service. And CIA spokeswoman Tammy Cooperman Thorpe, the director, said uh, CIA spokeswoman. The director did not know anything about him other than that he was introduced as an expert in the financial services sector and offered advice on transition to the private sector. <laughs> they had no relationship. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Jeffrey Epstein's offered a lot of uh what the hell was that? What did I just drop? Sorry. I'm sure Jeffrey Epstein's offered people a uh, a lot of advice on transitioning, you know. Ms. Rumler had a professional relationship with Epstein in connection with her role at the law firm Latham & Watkins LLP and didn't travel with him, a Goldman Sachs spokesperson said. Epstein introduced her to potential legal clients, such as Microsoft Corporation founder Bill Gates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was, you, Bill Gates was like, yeah, you know, I hung out with him. You know, I thought he was really interesting. And then my wife divorced me. And, you know, I totally disconnect. I don't know what her problem was. She, she's a uh, a B word is what I was going to say. The spokesperson said, I regret everything ever knowing Jeffrey Epstein, Ms. Rumble said. A spokeswoman for Latham and Watkins said Epstein wasn't a client of the firm. 
In 2006, Epstein was publicly accused of abusing girls in Florida who were as young as 14 years old. The FBI and the police investigated, and Epstein reached a deal with prosecutors in 2008. I'm sorry, I said 2016. In the prior sentence, it was 2006. He reached a deal with prosecutors in 2008. He avoided federal charges and pleaded guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He registered as a sex offender and served about 13 months in a work release program. Now, that's a whole nother thing. I don't know if you know about this, but like he was like work release is a funny way of putting this because it's not like Jeffrey Epstein, you know, just like shows up to some, you know, he doesn't go lift heavy things in a warehouse for 40 hours a week. Right. Jeffrey Epstein works from home. Right. So you're like, yeah, well, you know, your address is the county jail. But, you know, you get to go to work at your house <laughs> and you basically go work at your house all day, you know, and then you could stay there most of the week. And every once in a while, you got to stop by the jail, say hello, and then you go back to your house. And that's a work release program when you're Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Epstein's case generated waves of media coverage at the time with publications in the U.S. and abroad reporting on accusations from underage girls and young women in 2006 Several politicians returned donations from Epstein. Some associates moved to distance themselves from him. The biggest known client, retail billionaire Leslie Wexler, Wexner, later said he cut ties in 2007. His bank, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, later said it closed accounts in 2013, though some bankers continued to meet with him for years after. In 2015, Virginia Giffray publicly accused Epstein of sexually abusing and trafficking her when she was a teen and forcing her to have sex with influential people, including Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew has denied the allegations and last year settled a sex abuse suit by Ms. Giffray. Despite the negative press, Epstein's days were filled from morning to night with meetings with prominent people, the documents show. There were dinners in New York restaurants, meetings at luxury hotels, and gatherings in the offices of prominent law firms. Many appointments were held at Epstein's townhouse in Manhattan. Prosecutors alleged in 2009 that the townhouse is where Epstein sexually abused female victims for years, many underage, and that he paid some of them to recruit their friends to engage in sexual activity. After the Miami Herald reported that dozens of women said they were abused, prosecutors charged Epstein in 2019 with a sex trafficking conspiracy. He died that year in a New York jail awaiting trial in what the city's medical examiner said was a suicide. Now, this is the Wall Street Journal, okay? You have to understand something, that the Wall Street Journal is not, it's not even the New York Post in its outrageousness, right? It's not, it, it goes out of its way. It wants to be respected by readers of the New York Times while being at the same time a coherent and largely conservative newspaper, okay? So, like, they do not want to feed into this, like, Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself theme. But this author cannot bring himself to say... <laughs> That Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, right? This, this guy at the Wall Street Journal who would have called you a kook for doubting the official story two weeks ago is like, hey, he died in what the coroner said. I'm not saying it. I'm not telling you. It was the coroner said it. And if he's lying, it's his fault. I didn't do nothing. Mr. Burns, 67 years old, a career diplomat and former ambassador to Russia, had meetings with Epstein in 2014 when Bur Mr. Burns was Deputy Secretary of State. A lunch was planned that August at the office of the law firm Steptoe & Johnson in Washington. Epstein scheduled two evening appointments that September with Burns at his townhouse, the documents show. 
After one of the scheduled meetings, Epstein planned for his driver to take Mr. Burns to the airport. The following month, October 2014, Mr. Burns stepped down from his role at the State Department to serve as president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a think tank. He ran the Carnegie Endowment until he was nominated in early 2021 by President Biden to serve as the CIA director. Okay. So, you go. You're, you're Deputy Secretary of State. You're working for Hillary Clinton, I might add. You might remember that she was the Secretary of State, and so he is the deputy. And so, <laughs> this is so funny. Guy's working for Hillary Clinton. He's like, hello, I'd like some financial advice, pedophile. Can you help me? I haven't looked up your criminal record or anything, but maybe you could tell me about some money. <laughs> because, you know, the deputy secretary of state, he's not capable of figuring this out, right? He's like, what? I don't read the newspapers. I have no idea who this guy is. I go and I get advice from people all the time who happen to, you know, be convicted felons. <laughs> And then a month after he gets financial advice from Jeffrey Epstein, he's like, well, you know what? I could probably make a whole bunch more money over at this think tank, right? And think tanks, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, there's legitimate think tanks, you know. But at the same time, you got to understand something. Like, this is a way to wash money in large part, right? We're like, we're going to give all this money to a nonprofit, you know, and then they'll dole out salaries, right? You know, you have this whole, with the Democrat, but it's less so with the Republicans. They have some extent of this as well, of course, mostly with the defense industry. But, you know, with the Democrats, you have this whole, you know, pipeline. You have the government service, you have your think tanks, you have your media outlets, you have your activist organizations, Okay. And so they'll just shuffle you between all these things. And by the time you're done, you're picking up six different pensions. You know, it's a way to funnel money around. Because if you just, you know, wrote somebody a check for, oh, my God, I did it again. Oh, my God. This is at uh, 101. Sorry, 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 sorry. Wow. <laughs> I'm all worked up about this pedophile stuff. Um <laughs> They just shuffle people around, right? They're like, oh, here you go. You go over here. You go over there, you know. And so you don't have to worry about losing your job, I guess, is the whole point of the enterprise, right? You can go out and you could be a criminal and you can hang out with pedophiles and you could do illegal things. And you're going to make sure that you're never prosecuted for what you do. And if you have to get fired, you're just going to go to another gig. It doesn't matter. Ain't that nice? Isn't that like a great idea? Shouldn't we do that when we take over to government? Yes, we should. The documents show that Epstein appeared to know some of his guests as well. He asked for avocado rolls, uh, avocado sushi rolls to be on hand when meeting uh, Miss Rumler. According to the documents, he visited apartment. Uh, he visited apartments she was considering buying in October of 2014. Epstein knew her travel plans and told an assistant to look into her flight, see if there's a first class seat. He wrote, if so, to upgrade her. In 2014, Epstein called Miss Rumler. Within weeks of her leaving the Obama White House, Epstein planned a lunch in August of 2014 at his townhouse, followed by a series of meetings to introduce her to a wider circle of his acquaintances. Ms. Rumler first met Epstein after, her, after he called her to ask if she would be interested in representing Mr. Gates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Golden Sachs person said. So, it's just interesting you know, sort of the way money moves around, right? This is, you've heard me talk about campaign finance laws before and that they're a big sham, okay? Like, they're like, okay, well, you're not allowed to donate more than this amount of money to a candidate because that might be a corrupt influence. Of course, if you're hiring the candidate to do something, that's a completely different story, right? 
You can give millions of dollars to him if you want. You just have to write something else on the check when you do it. You understand? It's kind of how this works, you know. <laughs> it's a bunch of washing money. So, look, sweetheart, I'm not trying to hit on you and try to get you to, like, get involved in all my sick, deviant sex stuff. No. I'm just going to stalk you all over the country and look into your flight like uh, Elon's jet on Twitter or something. And, uh, and then when I get what I want, I'm going to hook you up with a clientele that's going to pay you millions of dollars. You want to be the lawyer for Bill Gates and you want to get fabulously wealthy doing that, sweetheart? Just do what I say and I'll, I'll make you Bill Gates' lawyer. You want to do that? Okay, good, great. Epstein and his staff discussed whether Ms. Rumler now 52, would be uncomfortable with the presence of young women who worked as assistants and staffers at the townhouse, the documents show. Women emailed Epstein on two occasions to ask if they should avoid the home while Miss Rumler was there. Oh. Epstein told one of the women he didn't want her around and another that it wasn't a problem, the documents said. Miss Rumler didn't see anything that would lead her to be concerned that the townhouse and didn't express any concern, Goldman said. Several people who visited Epstein during his time, this time, during this time period, said they noticed young women at the townhouse. One of the visitors, Helen Fisher, an anthropologist who studies romantic love and attachment, had lunch with Epstein in January of 2016 to discuss her work. You know what? I'm an expert on love and romance, so I better go convult. I, I better go have a consultation with this convicted pedophile because he knows all about this because he's a master manipulator <laughs> and he's going to help me uh, be very good at my work. Dr. Fisher said that after that lunch, Epstein invited her to speak with his staff and then infiled, I would say, six young women. She said, all of them good looking, all of them young. Dr. Fisher said Epstein had never funded her work. No, she didn't. He didn't fund my work at all. All that money came from him in some other capacity. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with Jeffrey Epstein. But I remembered it because of his spectacular house and because of them six young women. Yeah, indeed you did. And so... Anyway, you get the idea. This is a bunch of corrupt nonsense. This guy's, you know, all hooked up with all these people. And, you know, people say, people bring it up that he had, um, if you read that entire book that I mentioned, the Spies, Lies, and Blackmail book, Donald Trump is mentioned in the book that, like, apparently he had, like, met Epstein or something. And there are Republicans who show up in the course of this story. But it is not a close call. <laughs> who is more involved with Jeffrey Epstein, okay? It is not a close call at all. This was like, it, 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 it is not a strictly partisan affair, but nothing is, okay? There's a little bit, you know, Republicans get involved in Democrat stuff from time to time. You might have noticed that this happens. This was a Democrat operation, and say what you will about that, but that's what it was. 217-688-1433 if you'd like to be on the program. And the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do. Give us a call. Caller, you are on the, uh, you are on the, uh, <laughs> I almost said Outlaw Conservative Podcast. I'm all over the place today. I'm cursing. I'm calling it Outlaw Conservative. You're on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you? Hey, Chris. Um, what do you think about the statements Maria Farmer made about the fact that Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell were specifically targeting uh, non-Jewish women and that this was like a Jewish supremacist kind of like perspective in their rape? 
circles. Well, I certainly think that um, I, I believe that there was an ethnocentric component to it, right? And and my understanding, my very limited understanding of it, by the way, is that it wasn't just non-Jewish. It, I don't, I, to the best of my knowledge, he wasn't bringing black girls back there, right? He wanted he wanted young white girls. Is my understanding of it? Now, I could be wrong about that because. I don't know every woman that Jeffrey Epstein abused personally, and I'm sure that there are secrets, but that seems to be uh, the case. And if just off the top of my head, from what I have seen, I think they might have been disproportionately blonde. And so I do think that there was an ethnocentric component to it and that, you know, he probably he he certainly had an ethnocentric uh, uh, ethnic identity and that he probably would not have been viewed so favorably by members of his ethnic community if he was running around abusing his own kind. Yes, uh, 100%. I think they definitely, I think, I I forget if Maria Farmer actually talked about how they were targeting blonde girls. I think I heard that, but I don't want to say that for sure because I can't remember that, you know, completely. Um, But so, I mean, you know, digging into that a little bit deeper, then, you know, you have to look at Ghislaine Maxwell and her father was an Israeli spy in the British government. Um, It just seems like there's more of a connection to this, like that's specifically about the ethnic component. And it's not just like an add on or, you know, something that he happened to think. But it seems like there might be other ties that are specifically related to the ethnic component. What do you think about that? Well, I would say anything that has ties to the Israeli government has has an ethnic motive behind it, right? The, it, Israel is an ethno state, right? It's a, it's a state for the Jewish people, you know, and so um, it's necessarily going to have an ethnic component. How much of ethnocentrism makes up any given individual's motives at, at a given time? Um, you know, I would say is uh, is uh, something that we can't necessarily know the answer to. Right. Because, um, well, with Mr. Epstein, when you were having sex with teenagers and making millions of dollars, how much of it was how much did you really have to suffer through that in order to serve your race? You know what I mean? I, I'm I, my guess is that he was enjoying himself and that there was uh, that there was a lot to it. But, uh, you know, the there was certain I, I I and I can't be certain of this, but I. I would almost consider it certain that the ethnic component at least formed the aversion to doing it to his own kind. I'll say that that seems obvious to me from the available information. Why they, um, you know, I do not know for a fact that they were specifically targeting um, uh, girls of a particular ethnic uh, makeup, but it does seem to me that they were disproportionately blonde from what little I know of it. And obviously they, they keep these things secret on purpose. But um, that certainly appears to be the case. And, you know, how much of their motives are, uh, it's difficult to say from here. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, it's it's one thing to focus on the victims being, you know, blonde, white girls that they were targeting and how horrible that is. But then you also have to think about the other targets, which were the men that were involved and not not to say that these people are good people or whatever. But um, you have to like they're targeting rich people. They're targeting powerful people. They're targeting politicians. Um, to get them into rooms with these young girls and then get videotapes of it, uh, audio recordings, all this other kind of stuff. And then, you know, what kind of blackmail power does that have? I mean, you know, it seems like it wasn't just Jeffrey Epstein, you know, partaking in sex with young girls because he liked it. I mean, I'm sure he did. But I think that the actual power dynamic of it is beyond that. And that's the more interesting part of that story. So, you know, I, I think that part of the, the, the scariest part of the story, perhaps, is, well when you when you 
focus my attention on it, the scariest part might be the ethnic component. But aside from that, the one of the scariest components of this is, is that we keep on hearing that these all there's all of these tapes, you know, there's all of these recordings. I mean, it's just accepted as fact that there's all of these blackmail recordings somewhere and that it was largely speculated that Ghislaine Maxwell had them at the time of her arrest. And we don't know, to the best of my knowledge, you know, who he was blackmailing and to what effect. So I don't know that um, I don't know that there's uh, I don't know that there's enough of a data set to draw an ethnic motive in the victims of the blackmail. We have what Prince Andrew, maybe Bill Clinton, um, you know, uh, you know, there was an accusation, you know, on the other side of the ledger here. There was an accusation against Alan Dershowitz, okay, that that Virginia Dufresne person um, accused him. And he said, what? I absolutely did not do that. Um, you know, and uh, uh, so, you know, whether he was strictly blackmailing, uh, I have no idea. I, I, I don't know. Well, it's, well it's I think he was probably not blackmailing. He was probably not blackmailing Dershowitz. There was probably payment for services rendered. Dershowitz was his lawyer in the in the in the 2008 case. Yeah, well, it's funny you bring up Alan Dershowitz because Alan Dershowitz went through the media tarnishing Maria Farmer as an anti-Semite for making the claims she did about Jeffrey Epstein. Um, but I mean, a lot of yeah, that going so around. I don't necessarily. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think that um, you know the target of this. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think that the targeting of like the the rape blackmail was targeted at a specific ethnic group so far as it was targeted at powerful people and rich people to be able to leverage that against them to get things for the government of Israel. Yeah, I think that my suspicion is that it's more about serving the interests of the Israeli government than it is about, you know, who they're, who, who it is that they're targeting, right? The, it's not, it's, it's less, of an ethnic animus than it is an ethnocentric advancement of ethnocentric interests is what my perception of it would be. And so, you know, the, the state of Israel, that, that whole book, Gideon Spies, is really interesting because it exposes that, like, you know, the state of Israel sort of like, it, it just goes and like approaches Jews in foreign countries. And it's like, hello, citizen of this other country, your government needs you. Right. And they're like, and they're like, of course, my government needs me. What do you need me to do? My government, you know, and it's they're not we're not talking about dual citizens here. They're approaching Jewish citizens of other country and, and being like, hey, you know, your government needs you. And they're, and they're saying, well, of course, you're my government. And I'll answer to you. And so that's what they call uh, the Sion or the Sionim uh, are these are these people who, you know, come to work for the Mossad and they are and they are large in number indeed. And so and and the way that the book reads, in any case, which is not going out of its way to flatter it, it's my perception of the book, Gideon Spies, is that it's not going out of its way to flatter nor to um, cover up nor to demean the Mossad. It, it seems to me that the guy's making it an effort to put together a history. Now, some of it actually does seem kind of I don't know uh, some of the I, I think I think that the author of the book is sort of like technically incompetent because some of the things that he talks about in terms of technology are, if you understand technology, you realize that they're impossible. It's like it's like the professor on Gilligan's Island with the coconuts trying to make a radio or something. It's really silly. But other than that, the, the book comes off like the guy's trying to draw an accurate history of what happened. And some of it, interestingly, I'll tell you something. When I was over at that place in Illinois, I met a guy. Um, I met a guy by the name of um, Monzer Alcazar. 
And I mentioned during the course of reading from that book this whole Iran-Contra arms scandal, and Manzar Alcazar was accused of being involved in the arm in the Iran-Contra scandal. Okay, so like he knew about a lot of the things that were in that book, and and he's like he's he expressed to me not in great detail, but he's like yeah, some of it's blown out of proportion, but I, I know about all these things. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty something. And so. Um, you know, it's it, reading that and other things that I know about the way that that government works. You know, they're they're fundamentally trying to advance their own interests, and they they use the the in group preferences or the ethnocentrism um, to advance those interests. Yes, and they they also specifically like to use child abuse. I mean, the, you know, uh, the Epstein thing is not the first time that people have tried to tie Israel to using. Uh, child prostitution as a way to blackmail people. There was a case in Brazil of an Israeli diplomat that was caught running sex rings out of his house. And they, you know, they caught him with all kinds of photographs and, um, you know, people alleging meetups and things that were going on at his house in Rio de Janeiro. And then he fled to Israel. I mean, so this is like, you know, and there, there was another case that in Colombia as well. Um, it, th this is not the first time that the Israeli government has been caught using, you know, through their, whether it be spies or whether it be, you know, diplomats or consuls, um, using their, their, their um, representatives, I guess, government representatives or agents in other countries to try and blackmail, you know, powerful people um, to get favors for their nation. It's like a, like a tool that they like to use, it seems. You know, I am, uh, I'm not familiar with these other cases, but it doesn't surprise me, right? I mean, you know, they they basically are a they're an operation that um, it 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 they they don't they're not shy about what they are. Right. They're like, we're here to advance our interests and we will do what we have to to do that. You know, and, um, you know, I'd go so far as to say that, uh, you know, they're worth learning from in that sense. You know, um, now, you know, prostituting children, you know, there's obviously some um, ethnic. <laughs> ethical problems with that aside from the ethnic problems um but uh i'm not surprised that they do it right i mean it's perfect if you go and you you get somebody in that position they'll do anything right and and it and it puts everything else into context so like you know we don't know for sure but uh, you've called in here before and you say well how do you explain that this you know republicans sold us out at this point or something like that and i'm like well that that would do it you know if if they got him into yes. they got him into a compromising situation if he's like i'm mr conservative and he's like well you know you're you're a conservative tomorrow why don't you take this ecstasy and go in the room with this girl in a viagra for a few hours and then he comes out and they're like look at this video that we made you know, then they're like, oh, yeah, of course I support transgendering the kids. I don't want to go to prison for the rest of my life as a pedophile, you know, and then they and then they give up the, you know, they sell their country out because because they don't want to be put in that position. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest that that happens all of the time. It would like our government makes a lot more sense in that context if you really think about it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the case in Brazil, I think, is one of the more stark ones that happened more recently. So if anybody wants to look it up, um, look up Aria Share. That was the name of the, the consul diplomat that was caught doing this in Brazil. Um, and I'll, I'll forward it to you if I can offline and you can check it out on your own. But I, people should look into that because it seems like the Israeli government and, you know, maybe Jews as an ethnic group, I don't know, um, seem to like to use child abuse in their politics. And it's a really weird phenomenon that um, compromises the whole government. But I, I appreciate you taking my call, Chris. Um, interesting Thank show tonight. Thanks. Thank you very much for the call, my friend. 217-688-1433. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you today? Hi, Chris. Long-time listener, first-time caller. You're a great American. Thank you, sir. 
so you got you were talking about how you know uh, these people go, leave government and they get kickbacks from corporations and got me thinking about the meta of everything you're explaining here on true politics which is kind of that cash is not the only influence that we have right like especially on our team we don't have money right we just don't um, unless you're peter thiel which is not even really our team something like that we don't have a lot of money but we do how do they how does jeffrey epstein do it how do these evil people do it is they get non-social non-monetary currency with the people they want to influence right oh i see it, it, the uh, the non-monetary currency that you you reference is um the leverage of the uh, of the videos or whatever right and so how can we learn from that to me it means that you know we don't have we don't the conservative is going to say oh we're no it's just about business but we're beyond that right and it's we got to figure out how can we use our non-social currency with each other so that because we don't have the money we don't have the financial credit but we can make social credit with each other and just like national socialist germany made its own you know money on its own credit worthiness so to speak between each other we can build credit and don't have to use currency Well, you you are talking about um, within a uh, within what might be described as an ideological community, finding ways to conduct business without without the coin of the realm, you're saying. Yeah, because, hey, you don't have to pay taxes. That's one, you know, side benefit. But that's not the purpose. Um, It's. Also about like building our network because you know Jeffrey Epstein. Look at it's just surprising how big his network is, right? He, the CIA director? Are you kidding me? Right. So, what can we learn from that? With his, you know, he's not paying the CIA director off, right? He's just getting things he wants and trading, building networks, and to even contact him. So, what can we as a movement learn from that? Well, uh, I, I would say that the meta of your it seems to me that. The it's an interesting idea. I would say that he did not come into contact with the CIA director absent the money. Right. I mean, the the way that, uh, you know, these things all are in a feedback loop, of course. Right. So nobody really knows how Jeffrey Epstein got his money, to the best of my understanding. People tell this story that he had, like, figured out a way to save a bunch of money in taxes and then he was working for rich people, saving them money or their taxes. And then he took a, 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 a portion of what they were saving. And like the, I, the, the, the story is just preposterous in my view, because the claim is essentially that like he was just so good at math that like he saved these people millions and millions and millions of dollars on the taxes. Now, there is also in the um, in the Spies, Lies and Blackmail book, it goes through. He's got really quite a history, the Epstein guy. Like he was involved in a bunch of corrupt stuff at Bear Stearns. It was very, they briefly mentioned Bear Stearns in the segment I read, and so he was involved in something at Bear Stearns where he was like let go because he was involved in some really corrupt stuff. But he was supposedly bankrupted after that. I, I think what probably happened was he probably stole millions of dollars from Bear Stearns and sort of had it, you know, sort of stashed somewhere or or had so, in some capacity m- arranged for this money to come back to him in some way. It was probably his seed money for the. Uh, I probably shouldn't be talking about seeds with Jeffrey Epstein, but you get the idea um, to to, you know, launch into this uh, 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 broader offensive. And of course, you know, if he's working with the spy agencies, 
you know, does anybody really think that the Federal Reserve doesn't, you know, print a couple extra bucks on the on the printer on the side of the room for the CIA or whatever? Do you think that do you think that the Mossad doesn't um, try to find influence with the with the central banks? Right. They're they're trying to they're trying to get influence with pedophiles and drug dealers and and international arms dealers and all this crap. And they're just like, oh, the central banks, they're sacred. We would never do that. You know, we have a bunch of, you know people who are of the same ethnic group as us working there and we're never going to make any effort to influence their decisions because no, that's the central bank. They're technocrats. We couldn't possibly, you know, my imagination says that these people know how to, uh, how to tap resources in, in such a fashion that is not going to be, um, is probably not going to be matched by right wingers learning to trade with one another, um, in alternative, um, uh, forms of trade. But I would say that, you know, if people are able to, um, find ways of increasing the value in one another's lives, uh, and they can do so in a fashion that doesn't require resources from outside of that relationship, then, of course, you know, they, they are building something not from nothing per se, but, you know, but, but uh, creating um, uh, value that can then be exchanged outside of that relationship as a consequence of increasing the the value within right uh yeah i think it's more than just a one you know one-on-one trading you know and saving a couple shekels right it's it's more about building that network because jeffrey fc built this network on you know basically relationships and knowing who to talk to and who who to get girls from right obviously he had some like who wanted them who was in the group like he he was all about building the network, and I think we can learn from that. And how do we make that a more effective? Uh, well, I, away from this. Get- yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess you're talking more about the um, the network of connections to do other things than um, than than what Jeffrey Epstein is most well known for doing, and uh, you know. I think that that there's like this guy was meeting MIT professors and stuff, you know, it's like yeah. the, the amount of degrees of Kevin Bacon to get to Jeffrey Epstein in the upper echelons was close to one. Right? Well, so, that's the thing, right? If you were like, if you traveled in the upper echelons of American society, as you, the, how many degrees of Kevin Bacon is the perfect reference, right? A- at any given time in the course of being involved in American politics, how far were you from Jeffrey Epstein at any point in the course of his, you know, criminal career? And the answer was probably not very far, you know? And so that is definitely an interesting phenomenon. And this is, it, it feeds into sort of like this, this theme that I keep talking about, which is, conduits to influence and power, right? That like, we need to find ways of being more close to uh, people who have more power. And then, you know, in addition to the simple fact of transferring our ideas up and up the decision-making ladder, um, of course, all of the other advantages that come with uh, interacting with the members of the upper echelons of society, you know, necessarily follow as well. And I, and I think I more more coherently follow your train of thought now. Yeah. So to conclude, I don't want to monopolize your airlines, but as we as individuals think of ourselves, how do we become more powerful? If you, we, we don't have to get close to one on the federal reserve, right? We can build our own networks, but then as a unit, we grow. Does that make sense? And that's, thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Thank you very much for making a call. I, I appreciate it. Very, uh, uh, smart idea. Um, you know, I, I, I think that more than 
there's an element of our own community involved in uh, what I envision here. Uh, but of course, I think I think of it in terms of by using the value that we create amongst ourselves, um, try to get that value to be valued by people who have more value than us. And through that exchange of value, then we can exchange values. You get the idea? Ideas. 217-688-1433 if you would like to be on the program. Caller, you are on Surreal Politics. What can I do for you tonight? Uh, I just wanted to ask you, what are the three branches of government? Um, legislative, judicial, and executive. Uh, it was. It's the media, corporations, and pedophiles. <laughs> there you go. I, that's kind of that's kind of how it works. Um, so the the, um, the yes, the corporations ha- are the executive branch. Um, the uh, the media is the um, is the judicial branch. They arbitrate the disputes, and of course, the pedophiles make the decisions, which makes them the legislative branch. That's smart, sir. Yes, sir. All right, that's all I got. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Two one seven six eight eight one four three three. If you would like to be on the program, and the more you talk, the less I have to. So please do give us a call. I'll probably wrap it up pretty soon. Let me see if uh, there's a couple of stories here that I could get into. Um, (laughs) This is kind of funny. So uh, you know what I love now? (laughs) I got to tell you, before I even get into the story, it's it's difficult for me not to just read Revolver News all day, right? So um, I used to, uh, before I had to take a hiatus from the airwaves, um, basically like my day would begin with, Fox and Friends and the Drudge Report. And uh, you might have gathered, if you, were, if you were ever a reader of the Drudge Report, that, like, something happened over there. You know, people say that it was kind of always this way, and it just became more, more um, prominent in, uh, in later months and years. That, that essentially Matt Drudge has always been a man of the left. I've heard that said. But he certainly managed to do a better job of, you know, per- portraying otherwise previously um, than, he, than he did as of 2020. And so I like, I, I heard about revolver.news on Tucker Carlson um, at some point during the course of the year 2020. And I was like, oh, I got to, you know, check this website out when I, when I gain access to the internet again. And like, not only does revolver.news have links to stories, because, you know, the Drudge Report, for the most part, is not original reporting. There's exceptions to the rule, but most of it is just linking to other stuff on the web, and they're linked to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and stuff. And there's a, the good element of that, of course, is that you're, you're getting a very well-rounded, you know, idea of what's going on. You're not, you're not reading all your information from, from one individual, right, or, or from one ideological source in any case. But I go down Revolver News and I'm like, wow, this is great. 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 And I'm like, well, I could just read this, you know, this would be my entire show, just reading from Revolver News. I can't do that. I'll end up in a copyright problem. <laughs> you know, they're like, this is not the Revolver News show and you got to license this or something. But there's a story here, trial updates. Apparently, everybody in New York raped E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> Scheme email blows up her story. She called husband an ape. Oh, my God. She said something racist. Oh, oh, that's too bad, huh? You said something racist. Now you got to be, you know, deplatformed. you got to be canceled. You're, gonna, you're not going to have representation from Ms. Kaplan anymore. Um, so E. Jean Carroll, I think we've talked about this on this show. We certainly talked about it elsewhere. She is suing Donald Trump, claiming that he raped her. 
Now, she didn't, like, sue him, like, hey, you raped me, I'm suing you. She waited until he was, like, running for president, and then she was like, you're a rapist! And he's like, no, I wouldn't touch you with a 10-foot pole. And she was like, you defamed me, and now she's suing him for defamation and rape, okay? Which, you know, do I have to say that it's ridiculous? I don't. You already know. And if you look at this woman, you realize just looking at her that she's crazy. And if you listen to her talk, then you're like, oh, yeah, she's definitely nuts. And she's being represented by a lawyer um, who, it's a mere coincidence that she happens to be Jewish, I'm certain. Her name is Roberta Kaplan. And you might recognize that name if you've been on Twitter because Judge Kaplan has been trending on Twitter. And Judge Kaplan is the judge in the case that that Roberta Kaplan represents Eugene Carroll against Donald Trump. Now, that is what they call a coincidence. And I'm not saying that, you know, that there's anything untowards going because, you know, these people sue people for defamation. I wouldn't I wouldn't dream of trying to get into another lawsuit. I got enough problems, but it's really telling. So in any case. Story at Revolver News goes a little something like this. E. Jean Carroll, a controversial former advice columnist. <laughs> Can you believe this? She, I didn't know that about I, I haven't followed her career very closely. I didn't know she was an advice columnist. She's like, how to get raped in a dressing room by Donald Trump and make a fool out of yourself on Anderson Cooper. <laughs> e. Jean Carroll, a controversial former advice columnist, filed a civil lawsuit against President Donald Trump in November of 2019, accusing him of raping her back in the 90s. On Thursday, President Trump's pitbull attorney, Joe Tacopina, grilled Miss Carroll over her allegation that Trump raped her in a dressing room at the Bergdorf Goodman department store years ago. Unfortunately for Miss Carroll, the cross-examination did not go well. So, let's just real quick, okay? Let's just say that you want to believe the worst things that you can about Donald Trump. Maybe you do. Maybe you are one of those people. I wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people don't have positive opinions about Donald Trump. And there's reason to, like, doubt, you know, things about Donald Trump, you know. Uh, Donald Trump has not always surrounded himself with the best people. Donald Trump has not always made the best decisions. As a matter of fact, almost, here's how, as a matter of fact, real quick, before I even go into this, you know how dirty the Jeffrey Epstein thing is? Is that when Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested, Donald Trump, at one of those press conferences during the whole COVID thing, okay, somebody asked Donald Trump, what he thought about Ghislaine Maxwell being arrested. And he says something to the effect of, she's a very fine woman, and uh, I hope that she's okay, or something to this effect. She praised her and wished her well, okay? And I heard that as it happened. I saw it on television when they were all like, oh my God, Donald Trump's going to kill the country with hydroxychloroquine, okay? (laughs) And they were like, look, I know that he just praised the woman who was, uh, you know, hooked up with Jeffrey Epstein for trying to, uh, you know, recruit the girls that he was raping and selling to his Israeli Mossad clients or whatever. But we got to talk about hydroxychloroquine, and we couldn't possibly imagine implicating Donald Trump in the whole Jeffrey Epstein scandal now that he has endeared himself to Ghislaine Maxwell. That has stood at the, the more than anything else that people say about Donald Trump. Is the that is the most suspicious thing about Donald Trump? Okay, <laughs> that that the media hasn't gone after him for that. All right, 
I got to find, you know, somebody, if somebody knows where that clip is, I haven't even tried to find it. I'll try to find it. But uh, I got to find that clip of him saying, oh, she's great. I hope she's all right. You know, you, you know, good luck at trial, sweetheart, or something like this. If they had gone after him for that, then, you know, you have to, then you're like, okay, well, you know, it's run of the mill. They're attacking Trump. He kind of made a big mistake or whatever. But the fact that they didn't go after him is really suspicious. Because they go after him for everything, right? You can't, Donald Trump can't, you know, there's nothing, he can't, he can't, you know, you get the idea. Many people believe that this rape accusation may have political motives, similar to the unfounded allegation of rape made against Justice Kavanaugh by Christine Blasey Ford. A strange scam email between Miss Carroll and a Trump-hating friend lends credence to this theory. The Daily Beast emphasis ours. Oh, that's, so look. By the way, okay, <clears throat> if the Daily Beast is reporting on it and it's unfavorable to Roberta Kaplan, then you know it's bad, okay? Quoting from the Daily Beast at Revolver News, Trump's lawyers repeatedly went after Carroll for an odd email to a friend where they discussed the need to stop Trump and they said they had a scheme in mind. Following hours of emotional testimony where Carroll described what she said, we, we, I'm sorry, before I go on with this, the point that I was trying to make, it's slipped my mind. Let's say that you believe the worst about Donald Trump. Maybe you believe, on account of what I just said, that Donald Trump was hooked up with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And that would, based on that singular thing, I could understand you reaching that conclusion, okay? So you believe all the worst things about Trump. You believe he is a sexual predator. Okay, fine. Believe that. Maybe there's evidence of that. And if there is, it's what I just said about Ghislaine Maxwell. Even with that idea in your head, who in their right mind thinks that Donald Trump walks into a dressing room in a department store and just nails some woman to the floor because he lacks that much self-control? <laughs> Let me tell you something, okay? People say that Donald Trump exaggerates his wealth, and maybe he does, but you don't get anywhere in life near where Donald Trump has gotten if you don't have that much self-control, okay? The idea that he's just like, hey, average-looking woman, I'm going to nail you to the floor of this dressing room in a public place and, and forcibly have sex with you while you struggle against me because I am that kind of stupid, dumb animal. Because, you know, there are dumb animals like that, and they're almost all in prison unless they live in, like, a Democrat city that's legalized rape, which they've done that in a few places, you might have heard. Other than that, those people are all in prison, okay? And Donald Trump does not have the type of power to, like, get caught raping a woman in a dressing room and be like, hey, I'm Donald Trump. Leave me alone, coppers. <laughs> He's not that powerful. Donald Trump can't pay a porn star to shut up without ending up in a courtroom, Okay. So the idea that he just nails this woman to the ground is just preposterous. Following hours of emotional testimony where Carol described what she said was Trump's violent attack at a department store nearly three decades ago, defense lawyer Joe Tacopina began to cross-examine her with questions meant to poke holes in her story. While asking about how Carol developed her book, which marked the first time she made the startling accusation, Trump's lead defense attorney pointed out an exchange she had with a close friend, the fellow British uh, federal journalist, Lisa Burnbash. Quote, this has to stop, Burnbash suggested in a September 23rd, 2017 email about Trump. As soon as we're both well enough to scheme, we must do our patriotic duty again. Again? Again? 
Totally, I have something special for you when we meet, Carol responded. Two weeks later, Carol started a cross-country road trip to gather material for an upcoming book in 2019 about nasty men, one that ultimately included a bombshell account of Trump allegedly raping Carol in the dressing room of the Bergdorf Goodman store. Okay. So, you claim that you got raped in the 90s in a dressing room of a publicly open department store by Donald Trump. And you didn't come out when he was uh, on Celebrity Apprentice. You didn't come out when he was uh, all over the, the, the darling of the New York Times. You didn't come out at any of these things. You didn't come out when he ran for president. You didn't come out when he got elected president. You didn't come out earlier in 2019. You dropped your bombshell allegation in 2019, in your book about other stuff. You're like, you know what? I'm going to write this book about nasty men. Oh, by the way, I got raped by Donald Trump in the 90s. Thought I'd mention it. (laughs) I wonder if she sold a couple of books as a consequence of that. That's interesting. Trump's lawyer kept the fireworks going, relentlessly questioning Miss Carroll as to why she had not spoken to anyone about the alleged rape over the past two decades. From ABC News. In two decades, you don't call the police, correct? Carroll replied, correct. In two decades, you never revealed the story in your hundreds of advice columns, correct? Takapina said, correct, Carroll said. Mr. Takapina claims that besides the political scam at work, Miss Carroll also cooked up the rape accusation against Trump to sell more copies of her book, you don't say. Then he cleverly got her to admit the plan backfired since her book flopped. It flopped? That's interesting. Like, you could write a book about Trump. That's what I should do. I should write a book that said Trump raped me. They'll buy that. Like, I'll be redeemed in the American media, right? They'll, like, they'll go, they'll delete every copy of that Vice thing. You know, they'll just, like, ban Vice News from YouTube. You know, if I just write something nasty about Donald Trump, I'll be all set. (laughs) But she couldn't even sell this book. People are like, look, your story is too ridiculous, okay? This is after the Brett Kavanaugh thing. We just can't, we can't do it anymore, okay? Everybody's on to the scam. (laughs) He's poisoning my water. He's polluting my air. He's cooking my planet. And as he stacks the courts, waves my rights over my body to be taken away by the state. I'm afraid to be free. I'm afraid my... Right to free speech to be next. So now I will tell you what happened, the message said. Caver replied that the message contained a draft that was never published. Takapina then questioned why Carol would not pinpoint a date on uh, which the rape occurred. I wish to heaven we could give you a date, Carol said. Takapina suggested Carol only told her story about Trump to sell a book. You thought including a story about Donald Trump while he was still president would help you sell the book, he asked. I thought so, but I was wrong, Carol said. <laughs> no, you, you're not wrong, sweetheart, okay? Whatever, your book might have flopped, but everybody who bought a copy of your book bought it because of the Donald Trump accusation. Now, your book may have been a failure, and it sounds like it was. I certainly didn't buy a copy of it. I learned about you because the same idiot who's suing, who sued me is y- your lawyer. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is a con. Obviously, I'm familiar with this scam artist. 
I thought so, but I was wrong. She had previously testified her book did not sell well. Takapena then said, in two decades, you don't call the police. Correct? Correct. In two decades, you had never revealed your story to hundreds of advice columns. Correct. Okay. Only when you were trying to get this publisher to sell your book, Takapina asked, to which Carol replied, her story came out after the New York Times published its landmark story about Harvey Weinstein. Oh, I get it. All right. So, this is not just a matter of, I thought it was all about Donald Trump. It wasn't just about Donald Trump. You were reading the New York Times, and you were like, oh my God, it's my Me Too moment. Oh, I better, I better get attention away from Mr. Weinstein over there and get it on Donald Trump. You remember all the hysteria that happened in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein thing, right? Because, you know, it's not anything to do with Harvey Weinstein. It's not anything to do with Harvey Weinstein's membership in various groups, let's say. It has nothing to do with anything associated with Harvey Weinstein except men, right? It's men are dangerous because Harvey Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein is running around sexually abusing women and everybody knows about it, right? That is a problem with men, which is the whole Me Too thing, which is where she gets this idea from to accuse Donald Trump of rape because it's trendy now. You accuse people of rape and this improves your life, needless to say. Takapina didn't ease up on Miss Carroll. He cornered her over why she kept a diary and recorded everything except the alleged incident with Trump. I always thought if I wrote something bad, I'd have to think about it. If I write about it, I think about it, Carroll said. But you wrote a book about the worst thing that ever happened to you, Takapina said. I thought it was time not to be silent, Carroll said. Well, <laughs> she probably doesn't sound like that, but you get the idea. When questioned about whether she had ever watched Donald Trump's show, The Apprentice, E. Jean Carroll had this odd response. Quote, I love the presence of ambitious young business people competing for a job. I thought that was really quite witty and it was different. And it was so much better than, you know, the dating contest and the beauty contest. And those. this was the real contest where you could watch it and learn a thing or two. It was very, uh, it was very beautifully produced. <laughs> I didn't know this. This is hilarious. So she's like a, she's an obsessed and disaffected fan is what she is. She's like, oh my God, I'm going to watch Donald Trump on television every day. And like, it doesn't even occur to me that like, oh my God, I'm watching my rapist, you know, fire people on television. You know, maybe that kind of turns me on. I don't know. We're supposed to believe that Miss Carroll learned beautiful things from her brutal rapist. Sadly, it got even stranger. Miss Carroll went on to reveal that she had also been raped by former CBS uh, CEO Les Moonves. She recounted the experience in a novelistic way, describing how the elevator doors closed and Mr. Moonves pushed her against the wall and had his way with her. Oh, well. Carol also told the jury that she was assaulted by CBS Moonves. Da, da, da. Um, uh, honestly, this sounds like the type of stuff bored housewives dream about. <laughs> Daydream about. This is where all the news said that. I didn't say that. These guys are too much, you know. Um, and so, you know... Why didn't you sue? Uh, why didn't you sue Moonves? Oh, because he didn't defame me. Okay, all right. <laughs> These people are really nuts, you know. But I mean, this is what you get, right? You've got like a bunch of people who run around. They just run around raping children and blackmailing people, and then everybody finds out about it, and then they're like, uh, "Well, you know." What just just can we just talk about QAnon now? Just you know, you guys with your QAnon stuff is dangerous. You guys are a threat to the republic. Are you got are you are you you're plotting an insurrection, aren't you? We better shut you up. Don't you dare talk about us. Yeah. 
You know, if Donald Trump had raped E. Jean Carroll, he'd still be president of the United States, right? <laughs> They'd be like, oh, well, as long as we can threaten you with prison, then you could be president of the United States for the next 30 years for all we care. Just do what we say. <laughs> right, Donald Trump? Don't you wish you had done it now that you hear it on the, uh, now that you hear me talk about it on Surreal Politics, Donald Trump? I know you're listening. So, you know, you could go read the rest of that at Revolver News if you want to catch the rest of it. It's a, it's a trial updates. Apparently, everybody in New York raped Eugene Carroll. It's the uh, story April 28th um, at Revolver News, and it is a very funny read. But I'm not going to go through the whole thing because, you know, send them some traffic, right? Um, you should pay me. Become a Surreal Politics premium member, uh, surrealpolitics.com slash join. Uh, if you've been on my mailing list and you have a Microsoft email and you haven't been getting my emails, you might have gotten them today because I finally got them to straighten out. They just fixed it this afternoon. I put up a pop-up on the website. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't reach you. And then today, after I put that thing up, Microsoft got back to me and they were like, okay, you know, fine. This was a bunch of nonsense. They didn't admit it was nonsense, but they said they're implementing mitigation. And so it looks like my emails went through today. So that's great. Um, but, you know, it might be like if you're on Gmail, it might be in your promotions folder. If it's in your spam folder, you know, click the not spam thing or something. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? What else in addition to that? But more to the point, <clears throat> you should use an email provider that's not a, a con job, okay? Somebody who's not reading your emails uh, like ProtonMail, you go to surrealpolitics.com uh, uh, slash getpm, and then you can get a free ProtonMail account, or you can get a paid one, whichever one you want to do. Just go do it through our link either way, so that if you upgrade later on, I get a cut of sale. Uh, that would be a great idea. Surrealpolitics.com slash getpm. And you can go to surrealpolitics.com uh, slash readme. We'll get you links, my affiliate links to the books that we talked about today. And, uh, you know, there's the donate page and everything. You get on the newsletter and all the different stuff. Follow me on uh, Twitter, Talk Radio Gods, Surreal Politics on um, on uh, on a Telegram there, and all of those different things that you should do in order to uh, to help me out. And I appreciate you guys tuning in. I appreciate you calling in, and I do appreciate your financial support. And we will be back. So you know already, obviously, that Wednesday, those of you who are members, we'll do our members only video chat. We'll like you jump on the video chat with me. We have a conversation. Uh, it's a good time. Uh, that's a great idea. It's 10 bucks a month. If you like, if you were listening to my old show, I gave out a code, Agenda33. If you want to use that, you can get 33% off for your first three months. There's a lot of threes in there. You get the idea. Um, and then uh, we'll do that Wednesday. And then I do another show on Friday. Some of you guys are aware of, but I'm not going to talk about that too much here. And on Thursday, if you if you follow me on social media, I'll get, you get the details. I'm going to speak with a guy. I'm not even going to mention his name on Surreal Politics because he's too dangerous to talk about on the show. So I'm going to do that on Thursday, and uh, if you keep up with me elsewhere, you're going to know about it. But uh, that's my teaser. That's my teaser for that bit, and you'll hear more about it in the, uh, in the coming days. So I'm looking forward to that. So busy week for your humble correspondent, and I'll be back Wednesday. Thank you very much for tuning in to Surreal Politics. Have yourselves a wonderful evening, and good night. <laughs>